Hey, thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. I was prepared to write off a literal lifelong battle with insomnia to just being a part of doing more than 30 years of morning television and radio. When I dug a little deeper, it turned out there was far more to learn. So in this series, we try to help people fix their sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken and maybe we stumble upon some answers together. How much do you know about narcolepsy? Yeah, me neither. Narcolepsy is one of those things that I've seen portrayed in sitcoms and movies and I didn't really understand, or at least it was that way. And I have to tell you, I feel like that changed to a certain degree when I was lucky enough to chat with this week's guest. Her name is Julie Flygar, and she is a force to be reckoned with as a tremendous advocate for people suffering with narcolepsy. She was generous with her time. She was generous with her answers, and she was also generous in giving us a bunch of copies of her book to give away. We'll talk about the book in just a little bit, uh, and I'll tell you about the fun twist toward giving away her book as well at the end of the show. But in the meantime, I just want to get straight to it without any further delay. Uh, I want to introduce you to my new friend, Julie Flygar. Julie, I don't know if you're familiar with the show, um, but and and, and I'm, I'm nervous about even just right out of the gate here because typically there is a first question that every single guest in the history of the show has gotten, whether you are a world-famous sitcom actor or if you are a world-class neuroscientist, but I'm nervous about asking you the question, so I'm just going to ask it, and if it turns out to have been a horrible error in judgment, can I ask for your forgiveness in advance? Yes, and I know the question. Okay, all right, so here it comes. How did you sleep last night? I slept okay. <laughs> okay. I, and, and that's a fair answer because there's a million things went into that answer behind the scenes that I'm, I'm excited to dive into with you here. Um, because people who are looking at their screen before they hit the play button saw the word narcolepsy and so already know where this episode is going and what we're going to be talking about. And I'm going to ask you to do a certain amount of hand-holding here for me because really what I want to approach this from is the perspective of somebody who hasn't read your book, which by the way I have, um, somebody who hasn't, you know, seen a million things from you on social media and all those things, which I have. Uh, and I want to take it right back to the beginning for people who don't know anything about narcolepsy at all. And so now we're back to the hand-holding. Can you give me a crash course on what narcolepsy even is? Yeah, well, I really wasn't familiar with it either as the symptoms developed. And I think one of the most interesting things is that we have we all kind of often think that we know what narcolepsy is and we think that it is somewhat of a joke about someone falling asleep in the middle of a sentence or, you know, falling asleep while they're standing. And that really never happened to me. So as my own symptoms developed, I was in law school and I thought that I was just having trouble with the coursework for a long time and that maybe I wasn't cut out for law school. And at the same time, my knee started buckling when I was laughing at jokes and it was very particular and very strange. And so the first time I felt this, I thought that's there's something wrong, like this is not normal. Um, and that was around age 21, 22. And I asked many people about that, but couldn't find the answer for a while. And at the same time, I was having these experiences where I'd be asleep um, at night and think that I'd woken up and, and uh, to a burglar. 
coming into my apartment and uh, attacking me, but I couldn't move to respond. And uh, I thought that, you know, hopefully those kind of experiences would go away. Um, my brother had said that he had had some of those in college and it just went away. And so there was these kind of really different things happening in my life that ultimately I learned were all symptoms of narcolepsy. And so I think narcolepsy is a little bit confusing because there's actually five major symptoms, including the excessive daytime sleepiness. And I do get tired every day. Um, and, but then the cataplexy, which is that when I was, my knees were buckling when I was laughing, uh, that was kind of a different part of my experience. And then when I thought a burglar was breaking into my apartment, that's a hypnagogic hallucination and feeling like I couldn't move to respond to this burglar uh, was a was sleep paralysis. <clears throat> and then the fifth major symptom is disrupted nighttime sleep, which really confuses people because um, they often think of narcolepsy as like, you, you know, you can sleep all the time. But uh, narcolepsy is a disruption of REM, REM dream sleep in particular. Uh, it's a neurological condition and it's these boundaries between being in dream sleep and being conscious that have somewhat um, gone haywire. And so uh, aspects of dream sleep are actually happening during the day and at night I might be more conscious than I should be um, and not getting into the proper forms, the proper cycles of sleep at night. So it's kind of a complex condition. It's a very 24-hour uh, condition in that it affects both your day and your night. Okay, but let's wind the clock back to when all of this first started happening to you. I can only imagine because there wasn't a you yet um, out advocating for narcolepsy when you were only 22 years old. I'm assuming it was judgment palooza and that there wasn't a whole ton of support out there for you either. I mean, you know, when I didn't know what was going on, I tried Googling things and I never could find the right terms. And then once I did figure out, thankfully, through a sports therapist, because I had a runner's knee injury at the same time. Um, it, and I, I was talking to her about my knees <laughs> and mentioned my knees buckling with laughter, even though it had nothing to do with my running. And she thought she'd heard of that. And that was called cataplexy. And so that's the little key that ended up helping me find the word cataplexy, which led me to find out that's a symptom of narcolepsy and read the real symptoms for the first time. And um, I'm so lucky. I feel so lucky that she made that connection for me. I don't know how many more years I would have gone um, because I was already asking other doctors and getting blank stares, which was really, really challenging. And then, um, you know, once I did figure out what what it was, you know, there already was at least one, you know, organization working on awareness um, efforts, and I was able to connect to them, which was actually a huge part of my journey uh, for eventually finding support and community uh, for myself. Um, but yeah, it, you know, I don't know if much has changed. I'd like to say I've made some big difference. I don't know if I have, but often a lot of people get, um, you know, kind of strange reactions. Either people think narcolepsy is so insignificant that it doesn't matter, like it's like a flu or something, or they think narcolepsy is so severe, like, oh my God, you're going to fall asleep, like in the middle of doing anything, like you can't be trusted to do anything. And the truth is that narcolepsy is for most people somewhere in between. 
Um, and, uh, and it's different for everyone and, um, taking the time to explain to your loved ones, your friends, um, potential dates, you know, uh, what narcolepsy means to me, um, you know, is still sort of like a, a process. So we talk about community and community implies the idea that there are potentially a bunch of other people going through the same thing that you're going through. And yet narcolepsy is a pretty rare condition, isn't it? I mean, how many people are we talking about that are in the same boat with you? Well, they believe it's one in 2000 people that have narcolepsy around the world. So it would be about 200,000 Americans and 3 million people worldwide. But uh, similar to a lot of other sleep conditions, it's extremely underdiagnosed. So currently, only about 25% of the people who have narcolepsy in the U.S. are believed to be diagnosed. So you could say, actually, there's a much bigger boat um, of people uh, that I share this condition with, but that only 25% of them even know it, uh, which is part of the tragedy. And for those that are in the same boat as me, it took them uh, an average of 8 to 15 years to find their proper diagnosis after their symptoms started. Uh, so I'm actually pretty lucky because it only took me about five years to uh, from my, the time that my symptoms started to get a proper diagnosis. But, um, you know, so many of the advocates and fellow people with narcolepsy that I know went years, if not decades with the symptoms uh, without knowing what was wrong with them and even getting misdiagnosed with other conditions like epilepsy or bipolar condition. And going on treatments for those for those uh, disorders when they didn't even have them as part of their journey towards finding their proper diagnosis. Uh, so it, it's I don't think it's quite as rare as people think it is. And the other thing is, it's quite invisible. So often people say to me, you know, you're the first person with narcolepsy I've ever met. And I'm really not so sure that's actually true. I'm just the pers first person that you realize you're meeting. Um, because it also is such a stigmatized condition. There's so many misunderstandings. A lot of people do keep it private. And so you might have friends and neighbors and uh, professors or, you know, nurses or doctors that you've interacted with that have narcolepsy and you just didn't know it. And there are varying degrees too, right? There are people who have more severe symptoms than others. And, and the person I think about when I ask this question um, and, and it's interesting with so many medical conditions, if you can attach a famous person's face to it and a famous person will tell you what they're going through, then suddenly some of these things become easier to wrap your head around. Um, and you already know whose name I'm going to bring up. But uh, Jimmy Kimmel talks about having experiences with what he describes as very mild narcolepsy. So are there varying degrees for all kinds of people? Well, that's yeah, it's kind of a complex question in that there are a few types of narcolepsy. So there's narcolepsy type one, which is what I have, which is narcolepsy with cataplexy. Uh, so that, you know, um, it's, a, it's kind of a whole other layer of challenge to have to deal with if I f experience emotions that my knees are buck might buckle or that I might actually completely collapse to the ground. Um, and so narcolepsy with cataplexy is often considered, you know, um, a more severe version, I guess. And there's narcolepsy without cataplexy. And those individuals can experience all the same symptoms of narcolepsy, except for that cataplexy. Um, it, however, you could say somewhat that that might be less severe. And I think that's what Jimmy Kimmel uh, possibly has a diagnosis with is narcolepsy type two. Um, but it, there's also a very wide degree of 
people's responsiveness to medications. So um, I never would want to say that, you know, narcolepsy type two is somehow less severe because it's always individual in how you respond to treatments. And I know I would never consider myself an average case. I don't think there is an average case of, of any type of narcolepsy, but um, I did, I have responded well to treatments and for people that have more complicated situations or um, side of, uh, more severe side effects from the treatments, that also will impact how much the, the condition uh, affects their functionality. So yeah, it's interesting. I, I, Jimmy Kimmel has spoken a few times about it, but um, hasn't really, um, you know, stepped forward as any sort of a spokesperson. And um, I, I am, you know, you never want anyone to get narcolepsy by any means, but I'd love to see uh, a prominent face that uh, people would already recognize that might have a type one narcolepsy, uh, because I do think that's an important part about educating people um, about the, the severity of the, the condition can have. Well, and it's interesting that we're having this conversation while the world is in the middle of a pandemic because, you know, we talk about attaching a famous face to it. And it was when famous celebrities, um, Chris Cuomo from CNN is probably the the example that jumps to mind uh, most prominently. When Chris Cuomo from CNN was diagnosed with COVID-19 and was going through all of his stuff live on national television, there were piles of people who stood back and went, Whoa, this is a serious thing. So in the, in terms of famous faces, I mean, I know that Kurt Cobain had narcolepsy. Um, and, and I start to think about all of the other various professions that put people in front of our faces every day, whether they're actors or musicians or whatever it is that they happen to be doing. Does narcolepsy in and of itself prevent people from having certain occupations? Well, I think that the treatments have evolved, and so there are better treatments now. Uh, I, that I can't say that certain people won't be limited from certain professions, um, but in general, I would never say to anyone that you know someone can't be a world-class musician or a world-class athlete. We have examples of those. Um, so we have a um, LPGA golfer, Nicole Jaret. You know, um, maybe she's not a household name to everyone. She is to me as a huge role model uh, who has narcolepsy with cataplexy. And um, George Church is a is, you know, worldwide known for the Genome Project, uh, is a famous geneticist and he has narcolepsy. Um, and so uh, and he's, you know, made such huge scientific discoveries as far as the genome. And uh, so there are actually people that are doing incredible things. Uh, and we just highlighted um, on Project Sleep's website this past week was National Nursing Week. And so we highlighted nurses with narcolepsy. And so there are actually nurses on the front line of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic who have narcolepsy. And there are doctors who have narcolepsy. There are lawyers. Um, and so I do think that, you know, not everyone maybe feels that their functionality is good enough to take on something so intense like that. But um, it's, it's a complex issue of both the fact that narcolepsy is, can be quite severe, but also because there's so much misunderstanding that you might not know that certain uh, people even have narcolepsy um, and they might not speak publicly about it. Um, like certain doctors keep it quite private because they're afraid of 
being um, misunderstood and losing their jobs. So there's incredible amount of discrimination that's still happening for a lot of people in a lot of positions. Um, but what you also said really reminded me of another important point is that we do look to celebrities, right? And we look to Hollywood. And so I think that because we haven't had a very accurate, strong celebrity, uh, somewhat spokesperson in our community, we often look at movies. And so a lot of what people think of as narcolepsy still to this day is based on movies like Rat Race, Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo, and Moulin Rouge. Um, so, you know, even though those are supposed to be just funny, comedic uh, portrayals that are very inaccurate, there's nothing to counterbalance that in our society to say, well, actually, you know, this is the real narcolepsy besides people like me, but I'm not famous. So, um, you know, I think that's uh, that it's made those portrayals stay uh, stick in people's minds is kind of the only thing we currently know about narcolepsy. Okay, well, let's deal with the Deuce Bigelow thing right out of the gate uh, because, and if if I'm thinking about the same movie, that's the one with the bowling scene in it, right? Yes. Okay, so if you haven't seen the movie, uh, although uh, a whole pile of people did, um, I, was, I wasn't one of them, but there is a scene in Deuce Bigelow where uh, there's a woman bowling and uh, she has narcolepsy um, and, and goes to roll the ball down the alley you can tell I don't bowl very much. I mean, the closest thing I've ever gotten to bowling is watching a lot of Fred Flintstone. Um, so there she is about to let go of the ball, but then she doesn't let go of the ball because she falls asleep in the middle of the process of letting go of the ball and ends up flinging herself uh, down the alley. And by the time she hits the floor, she's already full on asleep. And and you're absolutely right that if that for a ton of people is what they think narcolepsy is about, um, First of all, yikes. Um, but that, let's get, let's get a couple of other basic things out of the way first, because what's depicted in that movie, that doesn't happen to people. Well, it's a very, it is, again, it's kind of an interesting thing. There's that scene and there's a second scene uh, in which uh, the, the, you know, the male, male gigolo character has, uh, is trying to have a meal with her. And so he's tied her, she's having like a bowl of soup or something. And he, she's, he's tied her long hair back um against something so that she so that as she falls asleep her head won't fall into the bowl of soup Yikes. um and so i will say i narcolepsy you know the severity of excessive daytime sleepiness can really vary and some people do feel that it can come on quite quickly and that they might be in you know even falling asleep while they're standing <clears throat> it's not the most typical way that the sleepiness appears um, and it, the most typical way would be a much more invisible and, and slow process of feeling sleepy, you know, while I'm <laughs> typing notes, you know, in a class or while I'm doing spreadsheet work at work and my eyes are open, but I'm just starting to lose my cognition. Um, and I never like completely collapse over asleep while I'm, you know, bowling or, um, while I'm eating soup or anything like that. I just, I might be tired while I'm bowling and I might be tired while I'm eating soup, but I certainly, for the most part, me personally, and for most people with narcolepsy, it would be much more invisible and it would just be, it would, it, it would affect our cognition, our memory. Maybe it would be, seem a little bit moody. Some of my friends say that they just think I'm kind of in a bad mood <laughs> when I'm experiencing sleepiness. But um, the other symptom of narcolepsy that I described to you, cataplexy, I could be in the middle of a conversation. I could be laughing about something that's funny 
and my body may become paralyzed. So I, so that symptom, I may completely collapse to the ground. Um, and you might think I'm asleep because I am completely paralyzed. So I can't even, all my eyelids are closed and, um, I can't move a finger or a toe, but I'm conscious in my head. So I can actually hear what's happening around me and I can feel my body's position, but I can't move. And so for that symptom, I could be in a very social setting and completely fall to the ground. Um, but I wouldn't be asleep. I would be awake in my head, but unable to move, which is quite terrifying and not exactly quite as funny seeming as randomly falling asleep while you're, you know, in the middle of a conversation. Well, one, it's one more reason you're in a safe place here because uh, the incidences of someone actually laughing while they're having a conversation with me, it almost never happens. So uh, I'm, uh. I'm, I've gotten used to that over the course of my life. Um, so, okay, and, and my last dumb question from the category of, you know, what is narcolepsy? How much on an average does, does a person with narcolepsy sleep more than someone else does? Or is it just broken up in different ways where sometimes the onset is unpredictable and et cetera, but you still, like a ton of other people do, get your seven to nine hours. It's just broken up way differently than my seven to nine hours. Well, uh, when I was unmedicated and before I knew what was wrong with me, I was sleeping. I knew I was a good sleeper. So I would sleep like 10 hours, but my body wasn't going to the right form. My body craved the REM sleep. And so I was going into way too much REM, but I wasn't getting enough of the stage three deep sleep. So technically I was like sleeping a long amount, but yeah, I wasn't going into the right forms. And then during the day I was having, you know, my body again, wanted to go into REM sleep during the day. Um, and so I was having a lot of trouble getting through work. So I would say unmedicated, you know, I definitely was probably sleeping way more than average. Um, but then with treatment, you know, um, I do take medication now twice a night and once a day. And so for the most part, I'd say I probably sleep about an average amount, uh, seven to nine hours a night. And then I do take at least one or two naps every day that are pretty short, 15 to 30 minutes. But Again, there's, you know, it really varies as far as what people's experiences are. Um, and, you know, that's just for me that I think that I'm in a pretty good routine now with my treatments that, you know, I'm not, um, for the most part, not like sleeping 12 hours every day or anything like that. I do have to be just more careful with my time and my energy because I do think I have more limited kind of like social energy. But um, yeah, so I, yeah, I don't think I sleep too much more than an average person now. So what are you giving up in terms of, uh, I mean, most medication for everything comes with some side effect or another. Um, is there something that you've had to accept as, uh, as part of the treatment and this is a trade-off you've chosen to make? It was really challenging to adjust to the treatments at first because I, um, with the nighttime medication that I take, I they recommended to not drink alcohol <laughs> really anymore. Um, and so I was in law school and, and you know, kind of like the party atmosphere, work hard, play hard was very much the law school atmosphere. Uh, so not drinking alcohol all at once was a big adjustment for me. Um, and I wasn't able to eat two hours before taking the medication at night. 
Um, and so, yeah, there were some really big adjustments and I did have some pretty severe side effects, um, at first, like, uh, stomach issues. And, um, for my daytime medication, it's like a stimulant. So I would have like a lack of appetite during the day, but then not be able to eat too close to the night because of my nighttime medication. So adjusting to the treatments was, took me a few years, um, and also how to make it normal that, you know, I took medication twice a night for a while. I'd be afraid to share a hotel room with friends uh, because, you know, I would have to wake up in the middle of the night. And um, how would I handle that? Or, you know, uh, taking medication at night when you're uh, dating and you're kind of dating someone new. Like, do you bring your medication along on a date or, you know, assuming you're going to sleep over or not? So there's all sorts of kind of at first it was really overwhelming to know how is this going to be normal. Um, but now I've been on the same treatment for 12 years and I'm so used to it. And um, a lot of the side effects, I found little tweaks to, you know, make things better over time, I believe. And just through also talking to a lot of other people who are on the same treatment really, really helped me figure out um, how to make it more manageable. Um, I, I've had from my stimulants, I've had side effects of anxiety. But I didn't know for years that's actually what was happening to me. I'd heard the word anxiety, but I didn't really know what that was. I, I think I thought of it as like a panic attack. And it took like hearing someone else in a support group talking about anxiety as this like dark cloud of negativity that came over them that I like all at once this bell went off in my head. And I was like, oh, my God, that's what I've been experiencing for so long. And I did had no clue that that was anxiety. Um, and so then I was able to adjust that treatment to take a little bit less. So, you know, yes, there are these balances you have to make between like getting a benefit from the drug, but making sure I don't take too much um, and start to have too many of the side effects. So there's a lot of balancing, but um, over time have definitely made a lot of improvements. I love when I get to talk to somebody who gives me an answer that sparks 14 more questions and you just did that. Um, and so forgive me, I'm going to go mining for all of that because you gave me a ton to unpack. Let's talk about your daytime medication, which is a stimulant for people who don't know what narcolepsy is about. Um, and hopefully, uh, for a chunk of them that just changed, but for those who don't know what you're going through on a day-to-day -day basis and the people who don't really understand it, who might look and go, well, what you need is a cup of coffee. Yeah. Well, the sleepiness of narcolepsy is, um, it's so, it's so neurological. So it's a little bit deeper than what people might, uh, think of as average sleepiness. So when I feel sleepy, uh, or a person with narcolepsy feels sleepy. They say it's like as if a person without narcolepsy had gone without sleep for 48 to 72 hours. So it would be a little bit like saying to you, stay up for three days, Neil, and you just need a cup of coffee. You can't stay awake after 72 hours. Have a cup of coffee, Neil. Just That'll suck it up it and have some coffee for crying out loud. <laughs> right? right? Yeah, no, I, I get it. Um, so, yeah, we do take stimulants and there's a wide variety now of options, uh, which is nice. There's, you know, so much drug development is happening um, in this space, thankfully. So, um, you know, yeah, so there there are different stimulant options and um, they help somewhat <laughs> more than coffee. So what do we need to do? I mean, so much uh, this project for me, and I want to talk about project sleep in, in more detail in a second, this project that I'm in the middle of has taught me so much. But one of the things that it's taught me is that there are so many people in the world that need to get into a sleep lab 
who don't know that they get into a sleep lab. And part of the reason they don't know that they need to get into a sleep lab is because their doctor doesn't know that they need to get into a sleep lab because most doctors are not trained in sleep science. And so they don't know what to look for. So what do we need to do in terms of the medical community for people who you're saying it takes them 12 to 15 years to figure out what their symptoms are or eight years or whatever, and you were lucky to figure it out after five, what needs to change in the medical community for five years to be shortened down to an appointment or two? I'd say that um, there's there's two major challenges. It's both the medical community and it's also the public awareness. And both are pretty important. So for me, I went a few years where I didn't understand what was happening to me. So no doctor can solve that. Like if I don't, if I can't even recognize that I'm having a problem with sleepiness, I can't bring it to a doctor. I couldn't articulate myself for years. Um, and so, and because it, that's because it was so invisible and it was so, um, I, I really honestly thought of it as like a willpower issue or I'd somehow did, I'd lost my drive or I wasn't cut out for law school. So to me, and I, I love this challenge of trying to get the public to understand that that could actually be excessive sleepiness. It might not be narcolepsy. It might be a different sleep condition, but um, that is an important conversation I think to have with the public because it's going to be through other people saying, Oh my God, that's been happening to me for years. And I didn't even think that that was something called sleepiness or it could be a sleep disorder. Um, especially in a culture, which we haven't taken sleep very seriously in general. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's good that there's a lot of people talking about sleep health now, but, um, often when, um, you might think that like, I, I also thought for years, like, oh, I'm just not, I'm not, I just thought it was my own fault and that I wasn't, you know, taking my sleep seriously enough or, um, you know, only if I, I hear people say like, oh, I'm going to get a Fitbit and I'll solve my sleep through a Fitbit. Um, and so it's exciting that people are thinking more about sleep, but it's important that the conversation also includes sleep disorders and that people with sleep disorders are out there talking about their experiences. So other people can say, oh my gosh, that's, that's what's wrong with me. And then on the medical community side, once you bring um, a complaint to a medical professional, um, they just need to have, uh, you know, we don't need primary care doctors to be sleep specialists, but we need them to know that sleep specialists exist and that they uh, can refer someone to a sleep specialist and to get a sleep study. And, um, you know, I don't know how to solve that overnight. If I did, then Project Sleep wouldn't need to exist. Um, but, you know, um, helping to bridge those educational gaps, I, I don't think there is any magical way to do that. It's just going to have to be through a lot of different efforts um, on educating um, medical professionals on all levels about sleep health and sleep disorders and, um getting them to refer people that might have those conditions to sleep specialists, um, as opposed to what happened to me the first time I brought, like when I, I went to a primary care doctor at the end of my first year of law school. And I said to her, I think I might have a sleep disorder. I was only familiar with sleep apnea at the time. And I didn't really, I hadn't really looked too much more beyond that. I didn't think like I, I knew I didn't snore. Now, I, of course, I know more about sleep apnea that just because if you don't snore doesn't mean you don't have sleep apnea. But, um, you know, I, I did say to her, I think I have a sleep disorder. And she asked me about my sleepiness and I described it to her. 
as you know, I was having trouble driving and, and doing my schoolwork. And then she said back to me, well, everyone gets tired sometimes. Even I have to pull over to get a coffee sometimes when I'm driving. And uh, so at the time, I just remember like the smallest voice in me because I really didn't know how to compare her sleepiness to mine. Like, I don't know how it felt to be in her body. I only knew mine. And I had been, you know, going years of, of trying to figure this out. And so I, I just thought, I don't think we're talking about the same kind of sleepiness, but I really wasn't sure. Um, and so she really, I think that was a mistake to kind of discard my complaint as a 23 year old, you know, high achieving law student. When I said, I think I might have a sleep disorder. I don't know why that was somewhat discarded as, um, you know, that that was normal. <laughs> um, I've had other people say to me that, that, that that's kind of a red flag, that something is pretty seriously going on. Um, but yeah. Uh, so, you know, she didn't want to check my thyroid and um, my iron. And I know that those are some common issues that can cause uh, sleepiness. So, um, you know, I think those probably were, you know, uh, from her perspective, good first steps. But she also really discouraged me when she said that that seemed normal. Um, and I think that's unfortunate. It's like when you go to a doctor and their recommendation is uh, eat less and exercise more. It's like, well, no, that's no, that's not a thing. Uh, it is for some people, but it's not a thing for everybody. Um, you let, let's talk about Project Sleep for a second, because, I mean, that's quite a mountain to climb uh, because you talk about even the medical community and, and the things that need to happen there in terms of effecting change. But also, I see countless people complaining about their sleep problems on the interwebs whether it's uh, Reddit or Facebook or wherever they happen to be, uh, you know, venting that particular day. And I've said easily 300 times to somebody online, you should try and get uh, booked into a sleep lab. And so many times I would say at least 80, maybe 90% of the time, people will come back to me and say, my insurance doesn't cover it. So is it as well that we need to get perhaps the health insurance industry to recognize that sleep itself can just cause so many other problems and that they need to take it seriously too? Yeah, possibly. Um, that seems so challenging to um, even believe. <laughs> like it was really frustrating to hear. Um, so that's a little bit news to me. I think that if you would go to a sleep specialist first and um, you know have a evaluation with a sleep specialist and the sleep specialist believed it was necessary that you ha have a sleep study, you know, um, it would be really unfortunate that insurance would be the barrier. Um, and so, you know, there's definitely policy stuff that could be done uh, to affect that on a systematic level. Um, so that's a little bit new to me. Um, I see people getting lost a little bit more in the primary care setting and never even getting to um, a sleep specialist. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it seems to be also that I don't think that people realize how severe it is. It's like sleep is just like, oh yeah, well, you know, we can deal with that next month. You know, we can deal with that in six months. Um, it's not thought that like, oh, that means if, if you delay someone from having a sleep study six months, that's, that could be, and they, and they work a full-time job and they commute across a city like LA every day, which takes an hour, you know, to get anywhere. Um, that is possibly, uh, let's see, you know, six months, that's twice a day, five, I'm not a good mathematician, but that's hundreds of times that person's getting behind the wheel and could be putting themselves at danger and other people. 
Uh, and I don't think the severity of, you know, how sleepiness could be quite a large safety issue, never mind quality of life and, you know, all those other great things. Um, <laughs> but even as a safety issue that like they're putting people in serious danger. Yeah, and we, we see that because actually like, you know, um, there's so many drowsy driving. We just don't even have, we can't even quantify how serious drowsy driving is, I think, because so many people aren't even probably admitting it, but that's a huge, huge uh, safety issue. Well, and if people go back to episode two of this show with uh, Dr. Adrian Owen, we talk about cognition and you mentioned cognition as well. And it's not even the drowsy driver is the most obvious manifestation, but um, the, the impact to cognition from sleep issues is potentially even a bigger deal because cognition is the hundreds of little decisions that you make every single day including is now a good time to make a lane change. And you may not even look drowsy, but if you're taking a cognitive hit from not having gotten the right quality sleep and enough of it, uh, then yeah, I mean, Dr. Owen put forward the idea that uh, a, a driver who habitually gets, you know, five or six hours of sleep a night is potentially every bit as dangerous as a drunk driver on the road. And and so there's a massive safety issue there. And I guess that's a good chunk of what is on the to-do list for Project Sleep is making sure that people are aware of all this. Yeah, there's, it's a lot of different, you know, we do advocacy. So we do, you know, um, some different work to make sure that sleep health and sleep disorder awareness uh, will get better funding in America. Right now, the CDC spends zero dollars on promoting sleep health and sleep disorders. There used to be a small program in this area, but it went away. And so we're advocating to get that funding back um, so that the society might be able to know a little bit about uh, sleep health and sleep disorders. You know, one of the comparisons I like to make is that I looked up, I believe the uh, energy drink uh, industry in America, uh, that Americans spend about $6 billion a year on energy drinks. I'm not talking about coffee. I like my coffee. I'm not going to, you know, go there, but I mean like monster and Red Bull and those kind of beverages that I don't think like tastes very good and no one drinks them because, you know, they're fun. Um, like <laughs> that's like that's how tired people are and that they're sending six billion dollars a year and, and an industry that is that has six billion dollars to advertise that as a solution for your sleepiness when there is not one dollar being spent on a on a federal level to let people know that, hey, if you're sleepy, you might actually have an underlying condition that a Red Bull sorry, um, energy drink isn't going to solve, you need to go see a sleep specialist and get a sleep study. Um, so, you know, we're trying to attack it on a policy level like that. Um, but, you know, what drives me personally is the communications challenge. Um, and what you just mentioned about cognition is one of the biggest things that one of the biggest reasons if you look at Project Sleep's website um, or, you know, a lot of my efforts, you won't see a lot of people asleep um, because, I really am fascinated to get people to understand that sleepiness happens often with eyes open and how can we, um, you know, get people to understand that it's, it's, it's like looking through a fogged lens or, you know, um, losing your memories of, of certain moments or, um, being moody, you know, but that's, that's real sleepiness, um, in a, in a, for a lot of people, as opposed to 
being asleep over your computer. Um, so that's why you won't see a lot of images of, um, you know, people sleeping in odd places in our um, materials, because I really hope to change that conversation and, and open people's eyes up to um, the the um, wide variety of, of ways in which sleepiness affects you uh, without actually being asleep. Um, and the other thing I think is just the importance of bringing together the conversation of sleep health and sleep disorders. When I founded Project Sleep, I really felt that a lot of people were talking about sleep health and promoting good sleep habits. And I thought that's fantastic. Um, but often their articles would never even mention sleep disorders. And that really bothered me because I worried that um, people that might have sleep disorders are attracted to uh, sleep health messaging, you know, um, and think that only if they are using the next tips for average, you know, how to get a good night's sleep uh, on a listicle or something like that, that that's going to solve their problem without ever knowing that sleep disorders exist. So Project Sleep is really trying to bridge that conversation uh, that both are important, but you need to know that sleep disorders exist. Do you have an advocate in Washington? Do you have, is there, for example, a, a senator or a congressman who suffers from narcolepsy? I mean, statistically, there would have to be at least one, but is there anybody that's on your side? We have champions, but we don't have any champions, um, <clears throat> any members of um, the House of Representatives or the Senate that have narcolepsy themselves. Um, but we do have... Uh, you know, I personally know of people that work in offices of senators and members of Congress that have uh, sleep disorders themselves or have loved ones with sleep disorders. So through our efforts, we've actually been able to tap into some of those connections. And um, even my own representative is, you know, really become a huge advocate for us and led a lot of our efforts just based on hearing my personal experience and knowing that sleep was an underdog condition that you just don't hear people talking about a lot. Um, and so, you know, it's been really fantastic that we've had advocates from across the country that have taken part in the efforts. And through that, we've been able to identify some offices that uh, might be a little bit more susceptible to championing this this effort, uh, which is just really exciting. You're funny. Um, and I, it, I that might sound like a weird thing to throw at you out of left field. Um, I'll tell you why I, I noticed that you're funny. And I don't know how often people tell you that. Um I, for a long time, uh, I spent eight years on the road as a touring stand-up comic. And I used to work with a comedian by the name of Gord Painter. And Gord was blind. Um, and Gord used his stand-up comedy as a way to raise awareness for blind people. And he would, for example, have someone walk him out on stage and every night he would ha deliberately have whoever walked him out on stage face him toward the back of the room, uh, the opposite direction from <laughs> where the audience was. Um, and, and what you watched happen, and I saw Gord perform and performed with him probably three or 400 times. And every single time I worked with Gord, here's what happened. There was the nervous laughter at the beginning from people sitting there visibly thinking to themselves and asking the question of themselves, should I be laughing at a blind guy? I don't know. Is this okay? And by the end of the show, everyone that you would talk to walked out of the venue saying, you know what? I have so much better of an understanding of what he's going through on a day-to-day -day basis now. Um, I, I have a better sense of how to treat the people around me 
who were blind or visually impaired or what have you. Um, and, and I would never have gotten the insight, pardon the expression, that I got into blindness had I not gone and seen Gord perform. And I think as well about another great comic uh, named Gary Gullman who had an HBO special out, uh, I want to say about eight months ago now, called The Great Depression. And Gary went from being one of the finalists on Last Comic Standing to his depression nearly driving him to suicide. And then at some point he decided, you know what, wait a minute, I can be a voice for depression by standing on stage and doing my act, but having all the material focus on depression itself and getting people to feel free to talk about it, remove some of the stigma, um, make people comfortable with the idea of having a discussion about depression and symptoms and all those kinds of things. And so when I say to you, Julie, you're funny. Um, I just, I don't, I'm just going to leave that there because I don't know if it's ever occurred to you to have that be part of your messaging is, is to, because you obviously are very well acquainted with humor um, is to try and use humor to try and get people to wrap their heads around it a little easier. Well, <laughs> I love studying that. And I've actually like gone to conferences where they look at different ways to affect social change. And so on an academic level, I know the power of comedy, uh, that it can really, um, it can get people to talk about Syria, you know, something like Syria, it's so serious and um, not a lot of people want to talk about it. And then, uh, you know, Samantha B can go and do a special on Syria and it can really educate people because you use comedy as a vehicle to, um, yeah, do exactly what you said. It just allows people a way in. Um, so I think what I'm really cognizant I'm really cognizant of, of my audience and knowing like not to cause anxiety in my audience. And, um, so through my own speaking, I think that there's humor in it. I wouldn't say I'm funny. I mean, like, you know, not like stand up comedy funny, but like, I like to, you know, make self deprecating jokes about like my fashion sense as a kid. And I think all that just allows any listener to realize I'm just kind of like everyone else. And, um, you know, so I definitely like to think that my presentations both make people laugh, but then also make them cry because I'll go to some of the dark places using storytelling as well. Um, and so, yeah, but I, there's actually like stand-up comedians that have narcolepsy. And I'm one of my best colleagues in this space, Anna Marr, is an actress and a comedian um, who has narcolepsy herself. And she's developing a dark comedy um, TV series based on her experience as a comedian uh, with narcolepsy, whose biggest trigger for her cataplexy is, you know, laughter and thinking that she's funny. So uh, it's, you know, I'm really excited to see her develop her project because, I think that there could be a lot of awareness that could be raised through it. Um, narcolepsy is such an interesting area with comedy, though, because of the uh, inaccurate portrayals in movies like Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo. Right. And and so you might think that I would say, well, comedy is terrible. But I think that the problem with those portrayals is they're just inaccurate. And so to me, they're not funny. It doesn't make me like I watch Deuce Bigelow and I don't laugh because that doesn't resonate with my personal real experience. 
there are actually tons of funny things about living with narcolepsy, um, you know, like dating. <laughs> and like, there, there are funny things, but the, the Hollywood hasn't tapped into the actual experience. They've been based on misperceptions and stereotypes um, to this day, because I don't think Hollywood's worked with the community closely enough to develop actually funnel, funny material. So I really hope that'll change in the future. Um, because I, yeah, there should be so many more, there could be many like more funny, um, and like comedic ways to raise awareness. And I hope that we'll see a new generation of, of people doing that. What's the easiest way for people to get involved and to help you with what you're doing? Uh, well, Project Sleep is our website and there's, you know, probably just the best is to get on our e our e-blast or our listserv because we send out most of our notifications via email to, you know, tune in for our live videos. We've been doing a lot of, you know, especially now we've been doing tons of uh, live broadcasts, but also to know when there's going to be an advocacy alert, we email out, you know, it's there's nothing all the time, but you know, every few times a year, there's like, okay, take action now. Um, and so we send those alerts out via, uh, our email and, and let people know on social media as well. And, um, yeah, so either through social media or signing up for our, our listserv on project sleeps website is the best way to, uh, find out about what we're doing. We're going to make sure that we link to that in the show notes. We'll make sure we link to the book, Wide Awake and Dreaming, which um, I absolutely loved. And um, Julie has been kind enough to offer uh, some copies of Wide Awake and Dreaming uh, for giveaway as well. So we'll give you details on that coming up on our website as well. There's just a, it's such a treat. I knew it was going to be a treat to talk to you. Um, and, and we're connected to so many of the same people. Uh, on social media and and it's I just I knew that I was gonna both learn a ton and just enjoy the conversation and and I appreciate both things Julie thank you for making time for this of course and thank you for doing what you're doing because you are definitely making sleep cool I think uh through this podcast so I really appreciate it see I told you forced to be reckoned with right Julie Flygar on the Snooze Button podcast. Um, mentioned in the show notes uh, and uh, on our website at thesnoozebutton.com all the information about Julie's book, Wide Awake and Dreaming. And also, if you go to our freshly updated contests page at thesnoozebutton.com slash contests, uh, you can enter to win a personalized autographed copy of Julie's book, um, and and it's a remarkable offer. Uh, that's a new one for us, and and like that's one more reason why I said generous with her time. So uh, again, the snoozebutton.com slash contests for details on that. Also on our website, links there to our social media profiles. Uh, you can leave us your feedback. You can leave a question for our panel of sleep experts. We've got a couple of those coming up in the weeks to come that we're going to get to. We got a bit of a backlog on our hands with that. And you can even support the show with a donation to help keep it commercial free and help keep new episodes coming. And remember, if you're crunched for time, but you love the content, there are nine minute versions of every episode with a different podcast called the Snooze Button Express. We're back next Monday with another guest and more to learn about sleep. Until then, my name is Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you? 